0: welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we're at London Business School speaking to one of the world's leading economic voices. London Business School's Professor Linda Yu has packed an almost unbelievable amount into her career across multiple fields. Starting as a lawyer, to economics, becoming a journalist and presenter alongside academia, and amassing a deeply impressive group of advisory chair and directorship roles. Linda has published nearly a dozen books, has been awarded a CBE for services to economics, and has acted as both chief business correspondent for the BBC and as economics editor for Bloomberg. We had a great conversation covering why the climate emergency will bring about another financial crisis, and what the great economists of the past can teach us about the energy transition one that you won't want to miss around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button if I could ask you for a small favour if you do enjoy our conversations please do hit that follow button on your app it would help us in the show more than I could possibly say thank you and enjoy the conversation Linda, thank you so much for spending the time here, here to speak to us. It's much, much, much appreciated.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, when we look at your body of work, one of the two, two great themes that come out are, one is you're an unbelievable communicator of economic ideas, and uh, two is you've got a great um, feel for, for the history and what lessons we can learn from history, which leads us to your book, you know, your latest book, which is on, on economic crashes. Can you tell us a little bit about the premise of the book, why you decided to write it now,
1: that's very kind. Um, I always think it's one of the things being here at London Business School, you have to be able to communicate your, your ideas. And I actually, so this book, The Great Crashes, follows on my previous book, The Great Economist. And they're both, you know, they're both accessible. They're meant to introduce the big ideas from history so that we can learn lessons from them. So actually, funnily enough, both of the subtitles of the book refers to lessons. So The Great Economist is the Great Economist, How Their Ideas Can Help Us Today. In my current book, The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. And so, um, you know, so one of the things that um, which I find fascinating, look over the course of economic history is it's just, you know, Mark Twain is right. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so unfortunately, as we're sitting here today, we just had um, it's actually, um, you know, if not the largest, certainly the second biggest bank run in, in history, um, you know, with Silicon Valley Bank. So the Great Crashes takes us through all of the major financial crises since the Great Crash of 1929 that led to the Great Depression of the 1930s. And then it draws out lessons for how we can try and, as the subtitle says, prevent the inevitable crisis from becoming a global meltdown. So, in other words, not every crash leads to a systemic banking crisis, like you saw in the 1930s or 10 years ago with the global financial crisis. So, this book draws out those lessons and, um, you know, and hopes that there will always be a crisis, but we don't have to suffer a decade um, of recession on the back of it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And this is unfortunately a subject that people have come back to a few times more than once, <laughs> which kind of implies that there's, uh, the lessons aren't being learned and that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're repeating mistakes of the history. Um, is there something that is kind of structurally an issue within the economy that the causes of these, these crashes to repeat?
1: Yeah, no, great great point. I think, so every crisis, essentially, you know, it's like Mark Twain said, it is, it is somewhat different, but they share common traits. And that's the theme I bring out through the book. So the common trait is euphoria. So there's always this belief that the market will just continue to go up, whether that's stocks or housing. And if that euphoria is filled by debt, that is when the inevitable bust could turn into a crisis. So in other words, not every stock market crash ends up leading to a recession. Not every housing crash leads to a global meltdown. But the ones that are filled with debt have, unfortunately, the um, propensity to bring down the banking system. And that's what leads to very prolonged crises. And the second uh, shared common uh, characteristic across history is credibility. Crises are only resolved when they're credible policy. So one of the chapters in the book is on Japan. So the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, whose remit it is, is to look after global financial stability. They would normally say in the first 10 months of how you deal with a crisis um, plays a big role in the aftermath, which of course is something all crises share. Japan took at least four years before they did something about the early 1990s real estate crash. And therefore, they ended up with lost decades of economic growth. So euphoria, the amount of debt, and then the credibility of policy is what all crises share in common. And those together lead to the aftermath. So as I say, you know, the worst one-day crash in U.S. stock market history was the 1987 crash of the stock market hardly a blip on the real economy. Um, However, you know, uh, if you think about the numerous um, dot-com bubble, just just as one recent example, of the early two thousands that burst, that led to a recession in the U.S., albeit a shallow one, and then that had global. Uh, that was there was an early nineties uh, recession. There was an early two thousands slowdown. So you can begin to get a sense that crises are pretty uh, uh, regular, um, and they do tend to, uh, you know, lead to. Um, depending on these factors um in aftermath um, which is you know which is a quite uh, uh could be quite uh you know uh troubling for people as they look at unemployment and they face you know economic stagnation and then other times um you know people. Some traders lose money and nothing happens. (laughs) So
0: So some of the signals there would be um, debts, euphoria, since this time is different. What can we do to mitigate it?
1: Mm. Yeah, so another great question. So I think um, the other term that um, I use in the book is uh, exuberance. So euphoria and exuberance um, tend to be used together. So again, going back to the dot-com bubble, um, irrational exuberance was coined by Bob Schiller, the Nobel laureate um, from Yale University. So <laughs> how can you mitigate against exuberance? And the whole point of irrational exuberance is that you can't. Um, it's human nature to just believe that you know, asset prices can only go up. So the key factor there is debt. Can you, um, as a regulator, uh, try and mitigate the amount of debt um, that's offered by the banking system in particular, um, to try and not fuel um, that exuberance or that euphoria. So that's one of the differences between a stock market um, you know, crash that doesn't lead to a massive economic you know, uh, decline. It's because it's not uh, a huge amount of debt on the back of it. So some traders might trade on margin. You know, so there's some leverage. But it's the extensiveness of debt Um, from the banking system, um, which, you know, which leads to the worst recession. So that's where regulators can play a role. Um, They can't do much about human behavior, but they could, you know, try to regulate uh, the amount of debt. And of course, the most important thing is they can be, you know, they can be credible in terms of their policies. So, for instance, one of the big changes over the past um, decade since the global financial crisis is that... Uh, banks now actively use macroprudential policies. So they use policies like leaning against the wind, so, in other words, what happens is when the value of an asset, which is the collateral on a loan goes up, it actually makes it look like the collateral is more valuable on a bank's balance sheet. So, the natural tendency is therefore to say, Oh, actually, we could lend more. So, leaning against the wind essentially says, mm, actually, when you have a certain amount of leverage in the system and a macro sense, um, banks um, could face regulators saying that we're going to limit your you know, loan to value ratio or some way of pushing against this natural tendency, um, you know, for more credit to be available when asset prices are rising. So that's one example. And that, by the way, I write in the book is actually a change from the Fed policy. Um, Alan Greenspan, obviously, famously during the dot com bubble, tried but found it very hard to take away the punch bowl. And in the book I write about, that actually dates to 1955 when the then Fed chairman said, you know, for um, the central bank um, to, you know, essentially to, uh, to lean against or even, you know, try and deflate a bubble. It's like taking away the punch bowl when the party is getting started. So now central banks are taking, <laughs> they are deflating. Um, but it is, you know, as I say, it's, it's inevitable we'll have a crisis. The only question is, um, you know, how, how uh, you know, how much Um, regulators can try and mitigate the impact. And one of the other things that policymakers, what we saw in the COVID crash did, is that they extended extensive income support to people, um, because obviously people are, you know, the pandemic was just an incredible hit to so many people. But supporting their incomes, because remember, recessions are just when incomes fall, And then extending, uh, you know, loans um, to viable businesses so that, um, you know, they can withstand a liquidity squeeze. So those are the kinds of measures which can also help cushion the impact on the real economy. So there's a number of things that, you know, policymakers have the tools to do, but, the other thing you mentioned this time is different is um, every crisis is different. Most of the tools are designed for the last crisis so if you you know if you look at, for instance, Silicon Valley Bank that I mentioned at the start, it's a mid tier u s bank It's not subject to the same degree of regulation as the systematically important financial institutions so that's a great example of um, okay, well, maybe mid-sized banks are not you know, don't need to be subject to this regime, and it turns out, oh, actually, they are systemic, according to the US <laughs> regulators. So therefore, you know, so that to me is why no set of tools ever be perfect.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a very good example of the power of lobbying. <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems to me that uh, that the current the current tools that that you're talking about that uh, regulators have been brought in, um, they've only been exercising them because they've really been forced to, uh, because inflation has gone up gone up you know out of control, and therefore they're they're trying to pull to wrestle that punch bowl away, but after having people stumbling around <laughs> in, in oblivion for an awful long time, loading an awful lot of debt up onto their, onto their balance sheets. So going back to the kind of the, the core um, of um, the reaction that uh, regulators have um, to to financial crises, kind of to slightly misquote uh, Churchill, um, "Never waste a good crisis." Mm-mm. And um, the way that we react to crises can tell us quite a lot about the priorities of a society. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you see? To interpret this is obviously a conversation on climate, um, how would you see our reactions to financial crises, the kind of more recent financial crises, from the you know, the Great Financial Crisis mm-hmm. up until to, to COVID? Um, and what, what has that shown us on our general reaction towards climate and climate change?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, firstly, I should say um, the uh, I have a chapter in the book which is dedicated to um, what's being called the Great Reset. So this is indeed. Um, I think especially the COVID nineteen crash just made people sit back and you know and think about um, you know the quality of life they want, the kind of society in which they want to live. And so one of the uh, concerns during the pandemic was um, with all the focus on public health, would it actually take attention away from you know, the urgency of climate change? And actually, um, you know, it turns out that it's such an urgent issue that global public goods encompassing both health and climate were very high on the agendas um, of not just policymakers, but importantly, and this is a lesson from history, stakeholders So the Great Reset, essentially, is when I try and draw out things like in the pandemic, obviously, for a time, um, pollution fell because people just weren't traveling, um, they weren't flying. Um, But as economic activity resumed, um, people have begun to think again about whether or not they need, you know, to jump on that plane, or whether or not, um, you know, where their food is sourced from, the carbon footprint of their activities. And I think that kind of great reset, um, where it's pervasive across society, that's actually how paradigm shift happens. So I think about my previous book, The Great Economist, I write about uh, the welfare state, which didn't come into being until the early 20th century. It was triggered by the Great Depression of the 19th century, known as the Long Depression. And at that point unemployment entered the dictionary for the first time mm-hmm. and so the capitalist society the industrial revolution didn't have a social safety net and when people became unemployed when there was a financial crisis when there was a depression you know People thought again and said, actually, this is not the kind of society um, that we want to live in. And there was a big alternative, which is the rise of communism and socialism um, at that time as a battle of ideas to say, actually, we want to live in a more egalitarian society. And fast forward to today, it's the destruction of our planet that I write about, which is also um, essentially a pause and a reset. And people will say, you know... I want to live in a greener, fairer society with a better quality of life. And this paradigm shift can only happen if you have, um, you know, what I described um, in my previous book, you know, this battle of ideas wasn't just among politicians. It was, you know, it was it was all of us. Um, that's how the stakeholders of society play a role. So on climate, um, we as individuals, um, we can vote for politicians um, who support our um, values. We can buy from companies um, that abide by ESG, environmental, social, governance concerns. Uh, we ourselves can take action. Uh, you know, we can limit our carbon footprint. We can recycle. We can promote net zero. So, all of that um, is essentially how de jure laws and regulations um, can be effective by de facto buy-in um, and the consensus shifting. So, I think you know, the great crash um, that we've just had um, of COVID, which, you know, was absolutely horrific in the years that, you know, people suffer through it. If the lesson we can draw from that is that more people now can work from home so you can see a behavioural change, extending it to, you know, to greening the economy and a fair society on the back of it. To me, those would be the lessons that we should be drawing, you know, from recognising actually, we can, as a society, stop and just change the way in which we work and live. You mm-hmm. know, we should extend that and uh, make it a, you know, paradigm shift yeah. so that we can protect the environment.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what do you think the role of the, uh, again, the, the regulator and the state is, is in all this? Like, for example, do you see a role for central banks to have um, carbon as part of their, their mandates? Um, like, it's, We're pretty narrowly focused in on, um, on uh, inflation rates. Um, but let's say you know, Europe has also committed to net zero by you know, 2050. Is there a, a space for, for example, the central banks to be told, well, that is also part of your mandate?
1: Yeah. So I think there is a huge role for policymakers to play. I think um, it's both uh, you know, on the fiscal side and um, you mentioned Europe there. The European Central Bank has included sustainability as one of its objectives that is looking at because central banks buy assets. You know, and the introduction of green bonds is another way where, um, you know, um, projects which are environmentally friendly um, should be priced differently you know, then um, bonds which are financing, you know, brown assets. So I think all of those things are part of the the change that has to happen if we want a paradigm shift. So on fiscal policy, I think it's very clear that the pandemic support programs done by, say, Germany and France were very geared at the transition to net zero. You know, so, for instance, Germany was mandating having charging points, um, you know, in its, um, you know, Probably soon to be uh no longer called petrol stations <laughs> you know Franz was um keen on you know on financing green industry, so I think that you know uh, governments um, are all faced with a growth challenge, which is the other on you know longer term structural challenge for lots of advanced economies so the green transition offers the possibility of investing in new innovative industries where the current stock of capital is lower than it is for, you know, say traditional industries. The IMF makes this point when they were arguing that what you would get a higher return from investing in green assets, putting government money that can bring in private money into areas which if we think about the possibilities, you know, are just immense. You know, everything from hydrogen to, you know, to solar, I mean, there's so much investment that could be had. And they estimate that investing during times of uncertainty actually gives you a greater bang in terms of, you know, the, uh, the pound, the euro, the buck invested, you know, in terms of not just output, but in terms of jobs, you know, green jobs. So to me, that's the um, paradigm shift that's required. You need to have the legislative, the regulatory um, changes that go alongside that. And then companies, um, increasingly, um, are facing regulators who are saying, you need to set out your net zero plan, your transition plan. You need to look at climate as a risk. You know, is climate change going to be um, a risk uh, to your business? And if so, um, how do you mitigate against that? Um, You know, you need to make sure that your um, plans for the future, because these are You know, these can be. Um, You know, businesses, we tend to think of them as reporting every quarter, but they all have strategic plans. You know, some of this transition will take time. You know, if you think about, you know for instance you know warehouses that need upgrading all of that they need to consider that and finance it and help with the transition then the regulators asking for reporting on it and then shareholders can hold them accountable so to me that's the change um, you know that thankfully hasn't been stymied uh, by the pandemic um, mm-hmm. i would say in the last few years there's been a you know there's been a lot of focus on esg and you know bringing all the parts of society together in order to you know, to uh, to make concrete steps, you know, towards climate change.
0: Great. That's a very optimistic point. It may drag us back to pessimism <laughs> and uh, the idea of crises again. Um, so Mark Carney, amongst others, have been uh, banging mm. the drum about um, potential need to dramatically reprice a lot of financial assets mm. um, because purely because of climate. Um, mm. And this is, well, that sounds to me like... Uh, Pretty classic cause of a financial crisis, like dramatic repricing of of, of assets. Um, do you agree with him? Do you think that this is something that we 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 need to be worrying about? Like you know, examples might be um, large amounts of property built within flood areas, hmm. because insurance companies are insuring them now. Well, they they really shouldn't be, If they they made a kind of rational calculation. They shouldn't be, hmm. but they realize they can not, not just not re, not redo the policy next year. And then it becomes the government's problem. It becomes the state's problem um, to be. You know, what do you do with all with all these people? And uh, the impacts of um, climate upon you know everybody's daily life and, and business mm-hmm. is going to cause to some degree or other, you know, a financial shock to to all of us. Mm. Um, Do you think that could be uh, like a a, a cause of uh, the next or not the, maybe not the next, but a future financial crisis?
1: Well, I certainly think if the risk is large enough, and certainly the point about insurance companies and, um, you know, areas which are prone to flooding, some insurance companies step away from that and won't insure that. But you're absolutely right. And there's been quite a lot of... um, you know, uh, focus on areas, for instance, in the US, where insurance companies continue to um, uh, have a balance sheet, you know, which is um, at risk from dramatic changes in valuation because of of climate change. So one of the things about having written a book about (laughs) the great crashes is, I think that, you know, uh, climate, uh, this area which generally speaking regulators will call shadow banking because you know clearly there are lots of different components of non-bank you know finance. I think there are all possibilities for you know for the next crash. In my book, you know, I basically I write about China because it's just overdue for one. Because you know 40 years of nearly uninterrupted growth is is um you know it defies economic logic. And so it'd be weird if China didn't have one. But I make You know, the point of saying it may not be the next one. It's just that when it has one, uh, it will be a great crash. And in my previous book, again, I write about uh, J.K. Galbraith, uh, the great economist who said economic forecasting exists to make astrology look respectable. So, you know, but the point about climate risk uh, on, um, you know, balance sheets, that's, I think, why regulators are very keen that businesses, you know, take a look at their assets and price in the risk of climate, which is why I think the reporting requirements have changed. So it's not just looking at how do you transition and what are your milestones. It's actually um, the valuation of what sits on your balance sheet. You know, are those have you um, you know properly priced in risk you know for climate change and the you know, the various companies that um, you know, so it's not just insurance, it's also companies that operate warehouses. Are they in potentially flooded areas? It's companies that have, you know, goods in warehouses <laughs> that, you know, could could potentially, um, you know, flood, um, or companies that are house builders, you know, and they are building in areas which again, you know, may actually, you know, be at risk of eroding one of their, you know, uh, major projects, all of those things, I think could potentially trigger um, tensions um, you know on um, we certainly saw insurers coming into focus um, with AIG um, in the 2008 crisis um, you know they were essentially rescued because they uh, you know they owned a lot of um, you know uh, essentially insurance on default. Uh, for Lehman Brothers. (laughs) Uh, And so absolutely, that is an area, you know, but we also saw recently liability driven, you know, um, investment strategies or pension funds were caught out by the changes in interest rates. So again, all of that, you know, not traditional banking, but what I think, you know, increasingly is called shadow banking, you know, because there is a lot of um, uh, potential risk Um, around that sector, you know, it may well be that that is, um, you know, that could be not the next and, you know, a future crisis, as you Mm -hmm.
0: put it. Um, And so as as part of the subtitle of the book and how how we prevent them. Yeah. Are you suggesting that we are doing some of the right things and to be trying to prevent them by forcing companies to be looking at these and start and to be repricing? No, obviously, if we we took we took a big red pen and we tried to reprice everything in the morning, then there would have to be a financial crash. Like if, for example, you took Shell like or BP and said all of your reserves, you can't do them anymore. Well, the economy just collapses. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's just that's that's life. Um, but are you suggesting that that the regulators are taking some of the right steps to say you need to be looking at these and repricing them slowly over time, so that as it becomes more apparent that these issues are are occurring, you're more accurately priced? Is that so, or am I misreading that?
1: Yeah. So the um, so the subtitle is that to hope that a crash doesn't become a global meltdown. Mm-hmm. So you know, subtitle is lessons from global meltdowns and how to prevent them. But we will not prevent the next crisis. We will have another crash, we will have another crisis. The question is, can we prevent the extensiveness of it so it doesn't affect, you know, people's livelihoods for years and years? So, you know, one of the ways in which regulators, are um, focus, an area we haven't discussed yet, is around um, fund management, asset allocation, so investment companies. So what they are pushing investment companies, who obviously are the shareholders in lots of companies. So this is another part of the jigsaw, the financing community. You know, the reporting is on what are your principal risks and then what are your emerging risks. And it is an ESG framework that's put around it. So in this country, you know, um, it is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's different for different countries. Um, but for this country, it is trying to say, what are the principal risks that your investments face? And then what are the emerging risks? You know, so one of the um, challenges for lots of companies, because remember, they know their business best. However, they also need, I think, um, to... Uh, especially if you're looking at, I would say, um, companies who've either been around for a long time or startups, both of whom probably think they're, you know, one of them thinks the operating is pretty good. The other one thinks uh, we don't have people to look at this. <laughs> so I think that's where the financing community plays a role, which is to look at their own portfolio, engage with the companies and say, actually, I think for your industry, um, climate is uh, more than an emerging risk. It's a principal risk. But there may be other industries where, you know, the impact is over, say, a longer period of time. It may be more of an emerging risk, um, you know, because, as you know, um, different challenges. So we've talked about flooding, could be biodiversity. You know, the the environmental challenges come um, themselves um, in different ways. And I think having companies look hard at how they operate at their assets and at their balance sheets, um, you know, uh, the financing community can engage with them because they also can see, for instance, lots of companies in the same sector where they can see lessons from different, you know, sectors that can be brought to bear in a company to say, actually, how have you um, valued this? Have you properly looked at the risk around this? Is there any way you could change the way you operate to mitigate against it? You know, so, and I would say um, that a number of the kind of the startups, um, they may not have, fully fledged ESG departments because they're startups, but a lot of the startups are very focused on being sustainable, you know, both in the environmental and the social sense. A lot of them are disruptive because because they're sustainable, because they are looking at how their impact on society, you know, so, you know, even, uh, you know, I can think of companies who produce, you know, say footwear. But the way they produce it is environmentally sustainable. That is their that's their USP. That's their selling point. Mm-hmm. You know, so to me, those companies also have the potential to disrupt traditional companies who may say maybe get a little complacent. And that's the other lesson from history, right? That right about my previous book, which is, you know, Kodak was offered, you know, the, um, uh, you know. A camera which um, didn't use film, which to us today would be, yeah, okay, (laughs) But they didn't want to disrupt their existing market. Um, So, you know, so to me, this is all part of the paradigm change, um, which, um, you know, I'm I'm, um, glad to see, you know, has come out um, over the past few years strongly.
0: Right. So um, your previous book, um, *The Great Economist, uh, was a fantastic, well, one, fantastically successful, which shows there, there's been a you know, very good, um, you know, a lot of appetite and a lot of a lot of interest in the area, um, and it was a great, uh, great pulling together of like twelve of the greatest, greatest mm-hmm. economic thinkers. So, which economists? from the 12, would you think is most influential on the way we deal with climate as an economic incident uh, today?
1: Mm. I would say uh, Robert Solow's work on um, growth models. His work in the 1950s um, still formed the basis of what we call neoclassical growth models. It's on the basis of thinking about the economy being comprised of capital, labour, um, and then uh, technology, which can boost productivity. So that way of thinking about um, you know, valuable assets, so for instance, capital could be green capital, I think that stream of work, and that's how I treat um, uh, you know, the book, which is I start with the seminal models and then I take you through how it actually changes. And then if you fast forward to William Nordhaus, um, actually um, also at Yale, <laughs> um, the, who won the Nobel Prize for incorporating environmental climate considerations into uh, macro growth models. That's the basis of how you can think about calculations of, say, green GDP. You know, what would growth be once you consider the impact on the, um, you know, on the environment? And I think it's that way of, um, and, you know, all growth models have a degree of, um, you know, intertemporal quality. So consumption tomorrow versus consumption today. And those have generated quite a lot of debate about what is a proper discount rate to use, um, you know, to have a sustainable planet in the future. You know, how much do you really discount that towards, you know, today? And these are the kinds of uh, models that I think uh, make for, um, you know, um, for those who are not convinced, especially the quantitative evidence that this is something that needs to change the way in which society grows in a qualitatively. You know, improved way and not just you know, quantitatively, which is how you know, traditionally growth has been thought about. And that's where the idea of green GDP is interesting, because that is a qualitative as well as just a quantitative. You know? I mean, if you grow strongly, but you're destroying the planet, how can you not consider that given that natural capital um, is you know, um, non-replaceable which means you would place a huge value on it, and you wouldn't discount that very much in thinking um, about the your actions today. So I think that whole stream has generated, you know, uh, models, evidence, quantification, and you know, and has helped, you know, um, uh, you know, we were talking about stakeholders pushing the issue along. That's another set of stakeholders, I would think, you know, pushing, you know, the issue along.
0: Great. So, in the environmental space, there's not a lot of conversation going on about uh, green growth and uh, versus degrowth.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what do you think um, he would have thought about, you know, that 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 debate and the, the obvious tension between the two ideals?
1: I so I think when you grow in a qualitatively different way, um, economists have actually long discussed the idea of utility. So, you know. Um, you know, we think about firms as profit-maximizing, but people are always thought about as utility-maximizing. So, what actually feeds into your utility function? This is actually an idea that goes to philosophers, you know, like Mills. This is not a, all the early economists from that book. are Actually, philosophers um, economics as a subject didn't actually really exist until the turn of the 20th century, when uh, the neoclassical economist, um, Alfred Marshall, created the term economics, um, it used to always be called political economy, it was always their philosophy. So the basis of um, welfare economics, thinking about utility, is that you know, people maximize um, their utility, which is based on consumption of not just work, but also leisure and their quality of life, really. So it's the qualitativeness of the growth that I think has shifted on the way that we think about it. There are lots of challenges around the slowing growth rate. So for instance, some economists would say, as our growth rate slows, um, we really couldn't afford Um, you know, to finance, say, the NHS, you know, or public services. And that's a big debate in in aging societies like in Europe. And I think there is a whole set of issues to debate there. But I would step back and say, if you want to grow in a qualitatively different way um, that maximizes, you know, your utility enjoying the planet and enjoying the environment, then you know utility has a long standing tradition in economics and i think you know people uh, make choices all the time based not just on you know money they base it on lots of you know lots of um, considerations so and society ultimately is made up of people making these decisions so to me that's the change that we've also increasingly see you know we see it in the environmental space where people make choices we also see it we talked briefly about working from home you know um there's a survey recently of uh, U.S. workers that essentially found um, if your boss told you to come back to the office five days a week, about, mm, about two-thirds would come back, about a third would come back and then secretly look for another job, and then um, the rest would just quit. And so I just think, you know, again, you know, in The Great Crashes, I write about how people's behaviour have changed over the past um, few years. And I think that would only strengthen their conviction in acting in ways, um, you know, that is environmentally sustainable as they go about, you know, their work. And, you know, companies are ultimately run by people.
0: And one of the other big um, kind of themes in kind of the, the environmental world now, uh, which you kind of touch on your book through um, through looking at um, at Marshall, uh, is is inequality, which we, yes. we have touched on, and the whole idea of environmental justice and how do we um, reshape the economy in a way that doesn't increase injustice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Alfred Marshall was the Cambridge economist who essentially created the term economics. So his the change in thinking in the late Victorian period, um, seeing the deprivation caused um, by the crises of the late 19th century, is laid the foundation for the welfare state. They realized by creating social safety net, it didn't disincentivize work. It just gave people security um, and helped people when, who have fallen in hard times. So that parallel in the Great Crash is when I write about the Great Reset. And one of the Great Resets is around a fairer society because inequality today Um, in the United States, for instance, it's being called the Gilded Age, the second Gilded Age. The late Victorian period was in uh, the UK. The same period in the U.S. was called the Gilded Age, famously captured by Oscar Fitzgerald and other writers of the time. So the pandemic has actually showed that government can support incomes and support viable businesses in ways that support output and income in the economy, which is ultimately what GDP is. And so I write about the fact that inequality has been so severe, and yet we see that in a time of crisis, by lifting especially the poorest in society, we as society are better off. I think it changes the the perception. Um, you know, just in the same way that happened a century ago. Um, you see it didn't disincentivize work. In fact, it saved viable businesses and it helped people who were in very challenging straits. So if you look now to the cost of living crisis, which I also write about, the book is pretty up to date, (laughs) Um, you know, offering, um, you know, income support to help people with their energy bills. I see that as a product of the success of income support from the previous, you know, um, couple of years during the pandemic. So to me, that changes the way we think about how support in an economy can help those who are least well off, and how it benefits, you know, how benefits all, us all as a society. So, you know, so you know, there's also debates about universal basic income that I touch on in the book, and you know, ultimately we will settle on, I'm sure, a, a something, something in the same way they did a century ago. But I think people are now more open to the idea that, um, you know having a focus on those who are least well off, um, you know, is beneficial for, you know, for everyone. And I think that could make for a fairer and a greener, (laughs) you know, society going forward.
0: What a fantastically optimistic way to to, to finish (laughs) this. Um, if I may, I've just got one last question. I always always ask for a little bit little bit of advice from our guests. Um, in your case, um, I think what was what really struck me was quite how um, accomplished you are in so many things. <laughs> Could you give some advice to people who might be feeling overwhelmed, or people who might think that they um, would like to be doing more with their life? Um, what's the secret of doing so much so well?
1: <gasps> oh gosh, <laughs> um, I think. Um... I mean, I've always thought that, you know, whose, whose quote is this, um, chance favors the prepared mind. So, you know, I've always thought that the more you enrich yourself, the more that you're open to opportunities, the more that you're engaged with the world. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in life, which, I wrote a book on the great crashes. Sometimes things happen, (laughs) you know, but I think just being prepared, being open. And I think, um, you know, stay curious, always wanting to learn, but also, you know, What made the great economists great is that they were always engaged with the big issues of the day, even if it wasn't easy, even if it was messy, even if it wasn't quantitatively as, you know, neat as their models. But I think it's that degree of engagement. That's what I mean by be curious, be open, which is to try and contribute in various ways. Um, And then also, as we've, you know, discussed, I think utility maximization means you know, we've always said you should value leisure. I think people should value leisure. I think you should think about the qualitative ways in which you know you can grow as a person, not just you know uh, quantitatively. I mean, that's a work for a person, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> but you know, I you know I think. Um, despite having written a book on the great crashes and uh, and on the great economists which actually you know went back to the you know the uh, the 18th century the amount of the amount of progress with setbacks that we have seen you know always makes me optimistic that we've seen challenges before some of which have been horrific challenges you know and we have come through it and i think it's just keeping that long-term perspective which might also help so maybe you know some history
0: Brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much, Linda. That was that was really that was wonderful. Thank
1: Thank you you. so much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, If you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels, and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by united renewables in collaboration with the london business school alumni energy club these are conversations that you just can't afford to miss